Hey guys, Matt here. Before we begin this episode of Anthology, I just want to mention that we are currently running a contest where you can win a free Anthology t-shirt. The contest runs from now until January 1st, 2018. If you want to enter, all you have to do is leave a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher, take a screenshot of the review, and email it to matt at obsessiveviewer.com with the subject line, Anthology T-Shirt Contest. On January 1st, I'll randomly select a winner from the entries, and we'll get a free T-shirt mailed to them. We'll be accepting entries until uh, until December 31st at midnight, so make sure you get the email in before then. Thank you guys for listening, and enjoy this episode of Anthology. You're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I review one episode of Rod Serling's iconic series and round out the show with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror, Dimension 404, and the upcoming Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing The Trouble with Templeton. It's the ninth episode of The Twilight Zone's second season and originally aired on December 9th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on Danny Boyle's 2007 space movie, uh, Sunshine. This week's bonus review is a special Patreon supporter selection from uh, Robert Garter, who recently uh, pledged the $10 review or $10 uh, Patreon pledge level. And my cat just jumped on my TV. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so Robert uh, uh, pledged $10, and as his reward for that, he gets to pick a bonus review for an episode of the podcast. And this is his uh, his selection was 2007's Sunshine, which is one of my favorite movies, so I was very happy to oblige him on that. So thank you so much, Robert, for your support and for uh, pledging, you know, your your actual money toward me. It's it's uh it's very awesome and very uh i i hope that i don't disappoint you and on a related topic robert actually sent me an email about um tower junkies my other podcast so i just wanted to say i appreciated that and uh yeah also use that opportunity to uh shoehorn in a promotion for tower junkies um <laughs> tower junkies is a podcast about um uh, Stephen King and the Dark Tower series that I host over at TowerJunkiesPod.com. It's one of ObsessiveViewer.com's podcasts. Again, you can find Obsessive Viewer Podcasts at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. Now, before I get into my review, there's a few things that I want to bring up, a few things I want to mention. First of all, you may have heard when I did my intro there that I have a new Twitter handle specifically for Anthology. So, this is the 42nd main episode of the podcast, and then I also have 19 bonus episodes and one special episode. So all told, 62 episodes into the podcast probably is 
good a time as any to create a Twitter handle specifically for this podcast. Uh, my reasoning for that is just that I feel like um, uh, people who follow Obsessive Viewer like it for Obsessive Viewer, and maybe if I throw in stuff about The Twilight Zone and all this other um, anthology and science fiction stuff, maybe they just wouldn't really care about it. So I have a new Twitter handle specifically for anthology. Again, you can find that at twitter.com slash OV anthology pod. And the reason that it's OV anthology pod and not anthology pod is because someone had at anthology pod. And it's also like, it's been, uh, it's, it's blocked now or something like, uh, um, or whatever. So that's, that's a shame. But anyway, uh, moving on. Um, uh, Tom Elliott's Twilight Zone podcast, which is kind of the premier Twilight Zone podcast. If you're listening to, if you're listening to my podcast and you haven't listened to Tom Elliott's, I mean, like he is, he's kind of the, uh, the, the great Twilight Zone podcaster out there. He, uh, his, uh, his whole umbrella and everything is launching a new podcast, uh, specifically for the Outer Limits. It's the Outer Limits podcast, and it's hosted by Victor Gamboa, who I, I'm super excited about because if I'm, I believe he was one of the first people to contact me when I started doing anthology, and he had very nice things to say, and, um, he's, you know, he's, he's always been kind of around and everything, and I definitely appreciate that, and it's so awesome that he's, he's doing his own podcast. So, um, the Outer Limits podcast is going to be a podcast where he's going through the Outer Limits episode by episode. He currently, as of this recording, has up an introductory, an introduction episode plus the first episode of the, of the Outer Limits. Um, and you can find that on, uh, twilightzonepodcast.com, thetwilightzonepodcast.com, and then click on podcasts. And then also follow him on Twitter at Outer Limits Pod. Um, super excited for that. And, uh, Congrats, Victor, for launching your podcast. And then finally, I've been commenting about the Black Mirror promotions and Black Mirror's pending uh, season four release, whenever it may be. And so I just want to give a quick update on that. Um, I'm recording this on Sunday night, uh, December 3rd, and they just released the uh, teaser trailer for Metalhead, the, uh, one of the episodes from season four. They have one more left in this little production or promotion run. So they, so tomorrow, Monday, the fourth, they will release the poster for USS Callister. And then Tuesday, the fifth, they will do the trailer for it. So I'm hoping that since that's the last one, that they'll have a release date in that trailer on Tuesday. But who knows? They could have a full-on season um, trailer announcing the release date on Wednesday. That's probably that's probably the most likely scenario. So hopefully that's coming. Um, so if you're listening to this the day of release, here in a couple of days we should know when Black Mirror season four will come out. Uh, follow Anthology Pod on Facebook, um, and I'll, I'll be sure to announce it and everything. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll come out next Friday, um, the 8th, but, um, that's when Netflix is releasing The Crown, and it's much more likely that the re- release date will be more toward the end of the month, um, if they're 
planning on sticking to the 2017 release um, just because they need time to, I'm sure that they'll want time to have a specific uh, Netflix page promoting it and everything when you load up the um, app. So hopefully we'll know soon enough and, and we'll be able to uh, anticipate it more and I'll be able to get my bonus reviews on track for it. So let's see. So anyway, that is all that I've got for news and updates and everything. Again, follow me on Twitter at OV anthology pod. Um, and I'll, I'll be posting anthology related stuff there. So the trouble with Templeton, um, Originally aired December 9th, 1960, I am going to go ahead and read the plot description courtesy of Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And of course, the review and summary and everything here here going forward is going to be a spoiler for The Trouble with Templeton. So if you haven't seen it yet, uh, please go check it out, then come back and listen. So here is the plot description of The Trouble with Templeton. If I can find it in my book. Here we go. Booth Templeton, an aged, non-content actor of the past, longs for the days when he never had to worry about his flirtatious wife in a stage production run by dictators who directed stars like cattle. Dead set against living a life of modern times, he is escorted to and from his residence and the theater, waiting for the world to pass him by, recollecting those indescribable moments of life when he was a significant personality he finds himself magically, magically transported back to 1927, a contented moment long ago when his wife of faithful, dis, uh, faithful dedication was still alive and the roaring 20s were full of bustle. While Templeton re- relives the memories, he discovers that life changes and so has his perceptions. He's now a tired old man who is advised by his late wife to go back home. He is not wanted in the past. Returning to his own time, Templeton realizes that the ghosts of his past were playing their parts in a fictional drama so the aged actor would make a change for the better. Live his life to the fullest, which is exactly what Templeton plans to do from this day forward. Going into the plot description, or I'm, I'm sorry, not plot description, but the uh, talent rundown of this episode... Um, The Trouble with Templeton starred Brian Ahern as Booth Templeton. And before I get into the actual, like, breakdown and everything, um, this is kind of a very unique episode because all of the cast and everything, um, that I'm going to name, the three actors I'm going to name, uh, plus the writer are all one time, one time Twilight Zone, um, performers and crew. Uh, this was all of their, their only Twilight Zone episode. Not only that, but it was their only uh, collaboration with Rod Serling. So I thought that was really interesting. Anyway, uh, Brian Ahern plays Booth Templeton. Again, this was his only episode of Twilight Zone, only Rod Serling collaboration. Um, he appeared in Hitchcock's I Confess, and I believe worked in some of uh, Hitchcock's television uh, productions. Um Pippa Scott plays Laura Templeton. This was her only Twilight Zone episode and only collaboration with Serling. And Sidney Pollock plays Arthur Willis. Again, this was his only Twilight Zone and only Serling collaboration. He previously appeared in Now is Tomorrow, which I actually covered in episode 9 of the podcast, where it was paired with Third from the Sun. Uh, Now is Tomorrow was 
an episode of a anthology science fiction show that never aired. So uh, go back and check that out in episode nine of the podcast. And of course, Sidney Pollack is a very renowned director or was a very renowned director. Uh, his credits include Tootsie, The Firm, uh, Three Days of the Condor, The Way We Were, and uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Um, among many others. Um, writer for this episode was E. Jack Newman. Uh, again, this was his only Twilight Zone episode, only Sterling collaboration. And it appears that he wrote a lot of like crime stories for television and film. And he has a bunch of credits for, uh, one-off episodes and, and TV movies all about crime. Um, and he began writing in 1945 while recovering in the Naval Hospital in San Diego from tuberculosis, which he contracted in the South Pacific while serving in the Marines. Uh, so that was an interesting piece of trivia. And then finally, the director for this episode was Buzz Kulik, and this was his second of nine Twilight Zone episodes. The previous episode we uh, saw from him was the season two premiere, King Nine Will Not Return, and the next episode that he'll direct is Static, which is going to be later this season. So with the talent rundown, I'm going to go into my thoughts as a first-time viewer and my review of the episode. And before I get into that, actually... um, (laughs) What I knew before this episode going into it was just the title. Um, I knew next to nothing about it. I just assumed, just kind of guessing from the title, that it was about a man or a place named Templeton. And that there was some trouble with him or it. Um, that was all that I knew. And I feel like I picked up the possibility somewhere that it was a time travel episode at some point along the way. But I really can't connect where that... uh came from or where that uh, idea came from or anything. And so my thoughts on this episode as a first time viewer, I'm going to be blunt right off the top that I wasn't too crazy about this episode. Um, coming off of, uh, of the lateness of the hour, I will say that it was very apparent, like very clear that this was not one of the episodes that was shot on tape. It looks, it looks fabulous. It looks, it looks pristine. It looks great. Um, but uh, I just didn't connect that much with the, um, the character or the story really, or the mystery surrounding the story, because I feel like it was a little too mysterious and I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. But, uh, this episode opens with Templeton in his study, I think, and he's looking out onto the, uh, out to the pool with his, where his young wife is entertaining uh her guest which it's heavily heavily implied that uh she's just having an affair just out in the open and that she just married him for his fame and money and that um she has over the years become less and less discreet with her extramarital affairs as booth templeton has become more and more content with the routine of his life and um and not as adventurous or, or living as, as he once was when he was previously married. So this right from the outset, this is kind of an interesting angle to play. Um, it really establishes that Templeton is this character who is all, everyone around him is, or at least his wife and the people close to him are involved with him for his, his status, his fame, his, his money, his, uh, she's, it's like, it's like Mrs. Templeton, um, 
didn't marry him for love or anything. She married him for his money, fame, and, and that I kind of inferred from that that the people in Templeton's life don't view him as an individual, but as as an estate, as um, as a piggy bank, as a as a uh, thing that uh, almost in a in a warped sense, like a savings account, they put in their time with him, and then when he dies, they'll get paid out from his estate. Like that's the kind of impression that I got from it, and then. He has his assistant who, and, and I think this may be part of the problem is that we get one scene with that assistant guy who gives him the, gives him the medication. We only see the, the, we only see his wife from afar and she's not like, it's just told to us that she is, that she's, uh, promiscuous or she's, she's unfaithful and, and not discreet at all about it. And we get in a very clear, idea of what she is, but it's because it's told to us. She doesn't play a factor in the, in the episode at all, nor should she really have. But I just, I don't know. It just felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect there because we get established. Uh, we are established with his entire life, like his, how his life is set up and everything. And then we dive into this other, like this flashback or this time travel thing. And it just, it just felt disjointed and like it didn't connect with me because we're just given a lot of information up front and it doesn't have that much of a payoff or any in, in the case of his new wife or this assistant who gives him the pill, which when he gave him the pill, it, it took me a few times. I honestly thought that that was going to be like the, the trigger for his time travel or for his entry into the twilight zone. And I thought that because the the assistant guy actually says like it's new and it's like there's there's kind of an emphasis on how it's a new medication and it needs to be taken daily and then after that I'm jumping ahead a little bit but after that we get a lot of or a, f- a few instances of him just not remembering things like he doesn't remember the uh, the guy who's who's the guy's name who is um who's who's paying paying for the production or anything and then he forgets his name like two or three times and it's just kind of kind of weird because it gets it gives you the impression that okay well maybe this pill did something to him and then that's what's going to cause him to have some kind of uh supernatural or or science fictiony um thing uh experience is what i was thinking of and i don't know like after he takes the pill he kind of uh talks about how he um he has his day-to-day routine he just goes to and from his home to the theater and rehearsal and then he comes back and then he goes goes over to the performance and everything and then his his life has no excitement or anything and and that's that's that was a that was a well acted scene that was a well uh, delivered monologue but it just reminded me a little bit of uh, Jaina from the lateness of the arrow, which we just watched last week. And it also reminds me a little bit of Martin Sloan from walking distance. Um, two episodes that I hold in to a higher esteem than I do for, than I do this episode. So that kind of was a little bit of a downer that it was just, it just reminded me of, um, stories that were in my opinion, better executed in the twilight zone. And that, that kind of also made me a little disconnected from, what was going on um, throughout the episode. 
and when he's speaking about his his life and everything, he re- references Laura, who he, as he puts it, she was eighteen when he married her and twenty five when she died, and like that's that's a tragic thing. Like she was the way he speaks about her. She was the love of his life, and his life hasn't been the same since she since she died, and that's that's really tragic and and um, sad. And before we get into like him going to the theater and his whole experience, I just want to point out that Brian Ahern really gave just this, he gives a dignified quality to portraying Booth. Um, he just, he kind of nailed his performance in this, uh, in this episode that I'm just overall wasn't crazy about. Like other than not being, or, uh, my qualms with the episode have nothing to do with Brian Ahern's performance. He has this kind of theatrical uh, delivery that it's like this dignified, like, like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain, but he just seems like, uh, he really, he really puts forth that, that kind of, uh, um, dignified presence and commanding presence. Uh, so Sid Sperry's introduced and he's, he's, he's great too. The actor playing him, I didn't put it in my notes, but Sid Sperry is great. He has this kind of, <laughs> he has this great, like, um, energy to him that like, he just seems like such an a-hole. Um, and he, uh, not, not necessarily such an a-hole. It's more of a, kind of the smirk on his face that it shows that he has power over Templeton and power over the production. That just seems like, like it just kind of swarmy, I think. Um, and then immediately after that, we're introduced to Sidney Pollock's character who is who he is the one that's just a complete a-hole and he plays it really well. Like he has this whole like, um, monologue for the, uh, cast and crew of the production, just saying that, saying that um he's in control of everything and it just it really gives you this uh this sense that he is just not he's purposely creating this toxic environment for the stage production without the um without the self-awareness of it but also it's just he's so uh dictatorial um if that's, uh, I don't know if that's pronounce, right pronunciation actually, but anyway, um, he's just such, he's a dictator of, of the production and it's just so, ah, it's, it's just so uncomfortable. And then he attacks Templeton, um, to which Booth just leaves the building, which like, that's, that's a good setup. That alone is a good setup. And then Templeton goes into, he just like immediately goes back in time, which is just kind of jarring a little bit because it's not anything that, um, it's not triggered in any, um, meaningful way. Like he's not, he's not like, um, Marty Sloan walking into his own, own town. It's just, he's just walking outside. He's walking either out of the building or into a back room. It was kind of confusing, but, um, and suddenly he's in, He's in 1927. The crowd is is cheering for him and everything, and it's just it's kind of jarring and and didn't really uh, connect with me that much. And it made me wonder if it was the pill because that that scene where he's given the pill is just kind of 
kind of meaningless or pointless to an, to an extent. Now, when rewatching the episode and when, when watching it again and again, I kind of picked up obviously that the pill, since it's not like a trigger for his time travel or anything or his memory loss, or it's no, it's not as, as a uh, prominent a figure in the story as that scene would make you believe. Like, it's clear that th- the impression I get is that this is just his daily medication that is keeping him somewhat alive. Um, literally speaking, biologically speaking. Um, my assumption is that it's some kind of heart medication. Um, judging from him, the way he says that, uh, his wife is waiting for the day that, um, that they don't work, I guess. So waiting for the day that he dies, essentially. So we're in 1927 with Booth Templeton and he meets a friend outside of the theater who tells him that Laura is waiting for him at a bar. And again, Brian Ahern kind of saves this episode, um, from being saved my attention toward this episode. Um, because the way that his, it's very brief, but like after he is told that he's, that she's waiting for him, he has this way, like his face lights up and it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a delightful moment and kind of a, kind of a sweet moment that he is, like this is the most lively we've ever seen of him in this in this episode so far and it's because his wife that died is waiting for him and then he gets to the speakeasy which first of all I'll just say that I am a big fan of like roaring roaring 20s kind of speakeasies and, and prohibition era party scenes and everything. I'm a fan of that aesthetic and, and that depiction in fiction. Like one of my, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite shows in recent years were, were the first four seasons of Boardwalk Empire. And it was all, that's all about prohibition era gangsters and everything. Like it's a great show. It's completely squandered its fifth season, its fifth and final season, but that's neither here nor there. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that kind of thing. So I was excited when I saw that we were in a speakeasy and everything. So then we get it very clearly shown to us that Laura just is completely, um, disinterested in him or distant toward, toward Booth. Um, and it's bizarre. Like it's, it's, it's bizarre, but not in a captivating way for me because I was trying to play catch up with the story. I was wondering like, okay, he went back in time, but like, is he, what's, what's going on there? Like, I didn't understand. I was trying to catch up if like, did he actually go back in time or is he in an alternate reality or is there something else at play? I feel like the show didn't give us enough information about what he was doing when he was transported back to 1927. But I did think of something that, that I kind of, kind of wish that it, well, I don't know if I, I wish that it would have went this way, but, um, one of my thoughts was that maybe he was being confronted with his memory. Like he had spoken so highly of her in the first scene, talking about how he was in love with her and that their love was so, so great and everything. Like I was wondering if maybe he was being confronted with his memory in the sense that, like did his did his memory of her over the years over inflate over inflate their relationship in the the uh the passion of their relationship like is he just kind of looking through rose colored glasses to make her seem like she was his true love but then that's that 
that obviously is an incorrect read of it because it doesn't go into that um, going into that and everything. But it's uh, the act, what we actually get. It's, I mean, it's kind of nice. Um, the actual reveal at the end, which I'll get to in a moment, but when she says, we, uh, why don't you go back where you came from? We don't want you here. That moment, that was, that was confusing to me. And also the slap earlier when he, when she slaps him, that was very painful to watch. But the combination of the slap and that line, why don't you go back where you came from? Uh, we don't want you here. Like that's, that's really, uh, that's really, uh, terrible. Like that's a horrible thing for him to, uh, hear. And that's a really sad to, uh, a really sad moment and everything. And then, Turns out that, you know, he has the script and it's actually a performance that they were doing for his benefit so that he would go back and live his life to the fullest, which he wasn't because he was living in, in the past, uh, mentally. Which, I mean, that's, that's a nice, that's a nice, uh, thing. That's a nice sentiment to, to put out there. But by the end, I was still kind of playing catch up and I was just kind of let down with it. I didn't, I didn't feel like it really did anything for me. Um, and then when I was rewatching it, one of the other reads that I had on it was that maybe it wasn't necessarily a trip back in time. Um, my thought was that maybe he wasn't traveling back in time to experience the glory days. Maybe he just took a trip into the afterlife. Um, like he had thought that he was ready for death, but his loved ones in the afterlife knew that he wasn't. So then they put on this performance um, to basically shoo him away to put him, bring him back to life literally and figuratively um, because he doesn't belong in the afterlife. Like that's not, he's so desperate to be with the ones he loved that he is forsaking his present day life and the ones that he loved don't agree with that. So they are sending him back like that read on it makes me more interested in the episode. And I don't know if that was at all the intention of the episode or if anyone else has that uh, perspective on it, but that is what kind of made me more interested in it. Um, but, but other than that, it just, it just didn't do much for me. Like in my first viewing of it, when he, when it shows that he has the script um, and it's revealed that it's the script of what's happened, like all my, all I thought was like, what is going on here? Like, what is the deal? And not in a, not in a, oh, I can't wait to find out what, like, what the big twist is or what, what's going on. It was more like a, man, I'm just not invested in this. I'm, I'm more confused by the story and by the setting and everything than I am invested in the mystery of the Twilight Zone and, and what he is, what Booth Templeton is going through. And that, I think, is a pretty much the worst, the worst position to be in when watching an, an episode of the Twilight Zone for the first time. Like that's uh, that just makes for a very bad experience, um, or it leaves a it leaves a poor taste in your mouth, and I don't know. So so the episode overall is pretty bizarre, but I did really like the way that he takes charge once he gets back, um, and once he once he reveals that or once he realizes that uh, his loved ones in the past wanted him to go back to his own life and live it. Um, I love the way that he just he. Get, like I said, Brian Ahern has this dignified kind of commanding presence. And then he, it's like the shackles come off in that final scene where he is basically, he goes into it. He goes into it, tells, uh, um, the, uh, the 
person running the play, uh, Sperry, uh, tells him like, I don't, I don't allow anyone on, on set, um, for, uh, for who isn't directly involved in the play, even though you're paying for it, you are, you do not belong here and everything. And it's, it's very commanding. And then he just, he just la- it's not so much that he lashes out at Sidney Pollock's character, but he just basically explained, like he just puts him in his place so clearly. And like, I love Sidney Pollock's uh, performance after that. Just, it's very, it's very muted. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're in charge. We got you. All right, cool. It's just, it's really, it's really a good scene to end the episode on. But overall, even though that was a good scene and I enjoyed, uh, Brian Ahern's performance and some pieces of the episode, I guess, I really didn't, didn't care for the episode overall. It was just, it was just missing something. Like it was the mystery surrounding the trip back in times was maybe too vague and mystic. Um, it just felt like kind of a bizarre episode. And that's, that's kind of a shame. So trivia for this episode, I don't have much, just that the beginning, uh, scene where Templeton is watching his wife at the swimming pool, it's the same pool that's going to be used in the episode, the bewitching pool, which is, I believe the last episode of the entire series, uh, to air. So we'll get to that eventually, but, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much all the trivia I have for this episode. Um, so yeah, so that'll do it for my review of The Trouble with Templeton. And yeah, I'm very interested if, if you're listening to this and you enjoyed the episode or really liked the episode or have a different perspective on the episode than what I just described in my review, feel free to send me an email or tweet me at the new Twitter handle at OV Anthology Pod. Um, and let me know because I'm, I'm very curious because I felt it's been a while since I felt this disconnected with an episode of the Twilight Zone when doing this podcast. And, uh, that just, it kind of got under my skin a little bit. Um, but still a good performance and, uh, it had some redeeming qualities. It just didn't work for me. So, um, before we go on to this week's bonus review, uh, here's a highlight from a recent episode of The Obsessive Viewer, which is the flagship podcast of ObsessiveViewer.com, in which I and my friends review movies and TV shows and discuss uh, the industry as a whole, and um, basically it's a movie and TV podcast. Uh, yeah, so here's a clip from a recent episode of that show. The, the, the scenes he has with, for lack of a better term, under the, the circumstances around his companion. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And again, that it goes in, for me, it goes into the question of humanity. And mm-hmm. Of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can also find more of my podcasting overall at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. All right, so for this week's bonus review, I'm very excited about this uh, because it is a Patreon bo- Patreon selected bonus review, which means that one of one of my listeners, Robert, uh, has graciously donated his money and selected a bonus review for me to incorporate into an episode. So he selected 2007's Sunshine by Danny Boyle and. Since this is a Patreon level, um, 
uh, bonus review, I'm going to do it a little bit different because I, in the past, I have done re- bonus reviews that are suggested by uh, listeners. So I feel like it would be somewhat unfair to just do that same kind of thing. Like, like uh, Robert, Robert gave me his money, so. It, I wanted to do something different. So what I'm going to do for the bonus review, ordinarily they are spoiler free, but this time, since this is a Patreon bonus review, what I'm going to do is do a non-spoiler review of the movie and then uh, go into a spoiler review. So if you haven't seen Sunshine, um, I will clearly mark when I'm going to start spoiling it. Um, and then, and then you can kind of turn off the podcast at that point, or if you don't mind spoilers, continue listening. So, uh, I'm going to start out by saying that I, of course, as I've said, I'm a huge fan of this movie and of Danny Boyle as well, and Alex Garland as well, the uh, writer. So, kind of my background with this movie is that I was a huge fan of 28 Days Later. That was kind of my entry point to Danny Boyle's work. Um, I became kind of enamored with 28 Days Later because as a teenager at the time, I think I was a sophomore in high school, um, I was just obsessed with movies and everything, and I would go on like IMDb message boards and stuff, and I would come across, oh, there's 28 Days Later. This seems kind of cool. So I uh, watched the trailer. I, I remember going to the theater alone in seeing it and just being really, really impressed with it. Um, and also impressed with the music by it, which I'll get into that in a bit because, uh, John Murphy did the music for both 20 days later and sunshine. So I kind of credit 20 days later as kicking, kicking off my love of zombie movies and my appreciation for Danny Boyle's work. And when I found out that he was collaborating with Alex Garland again, for an original science fiction space movie, I remember getting very excited about that. Um, I remembered seeing, I remember seeing the trailer several times uh, around 20 or 2006 or 2007 uh, when it was about to come out. Um, the trailer has the music from Requiem for a Dream on it, which is overused. <laughs> it's kind of funny because the trailer for Sunshine has, um, uh, the music, uh, Clint Mansell's music from Requiem for a Dream, which is the most overused music for movie trailers. And then Sunshine also has the track from John Murphy, uh, Adagio in D minor. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that all became like the go-to trailer music for the film industry for several years after Sunshine was released. So it was kind of interesting, but I remember being very excited about that, uh, about the trailer and then extremely disappointed because the movie kind of came and went from theaters. I don't, I don't even think that it even played anywhere around me. So I didn't get a chance to see this in theaters, which is a shame because it's, it's a beautiful looking movie. And I kind of wish that, you know, it would, it would have, uh, I would have been able to see it in theaters, but. Anyway, some months passed and then in January of 28 or 2018, January of 2008, man, that's almost 10 years ago. That's insane. Um, I actually blind bought the DVD and at the time I was, my job was a security guard that I was, I was working nights. And since I had a lot of downtime, what I would do is I would bring my laptop and watch movies. Um, so I watched it on one of my weekend shifts and uh, like I loved it immediately. Like I actually watched it a couple of times back to back. And then 
I even I was so excited about it. I bought a I bought a copy uh, for my co-host on the Obsessive Viewer and Tower Junkies. I bought a copy for Tiny um, for his birthday that year because his birthday is uh, January sixteenth, and I bought a copy of I uh, eventually probably in that same that same month I bought a copy of it on Blu-ray because I wanted it on Blu-ray. Um, and then the, the Blu-ray even had like a, like a, uh, PS3 cause I, I had my PlayStation three as, uh, as my Blu-ray player had an, had some kind of defect, uh, where it would, it would automatically play, um, the side by side comparison and there was no way to disable that. Uh, feature. So I had to, had to order a replacement. So my whole point of that is that I have bought, I have accrued many, many copies of this movie and I've bought it so many times. And it's, it's just, I think I bought it for, if not one of the Shocktober gifts, I think I, uh, or giveaways, I think I bought a copy or two for, uh, one of the indie pop cons we did where we were giving away prizes. So, Anyway, then going back to 2008, when I watched it for the first time, I actually watched, in 2008, I watched the movie Sunshine a total of 10 times in that year, and five of those viewings were within my first week of viewing the movie for the first time. So I kind of became obsessed with it, and um, yeah, it's just, it was, it's just a, a big movie that, that holds a very special place in my heart. And for those who aren't aware, what I'm going to do is going to go ahead and read a, uh, plot description courtesy of IMDb. And then I'll go into my non-spoiler review of Sunshine. So per IMDb, uh, the plot description for Sunshine is... A team of international astronauts are sent on a dangerous mission to reignite the dying sun with a nuclear fission bomb in 2057. Uh, so, of course, starring in this movie are uh, so many people. It's so awesome. Uh, so many great people. Uh, Killian Murphy as Robert Kappa. Um, Rose Byrne as Cassie. Uh, Benedict Wong as Trey who I'm such a fan of Benedict Wong. He pops up in so many things that I'm just a huge fan of. Um, he's in like, and it's, it's amazing. Cause he pops up in science fiction movies that I like, he just pops up in science fiction that I, that I adore. So he is, let's see, he was in an episode of black mirror. He was in Dr. Strange, uh, the Martian, uh, he's just in a bunch of stuff. Uh, Prometheus, He's also going to be in an episode of Electric Dreams that I'm going to be uh, reviewing in January in a bonus review series. And then he's also going to be in Annihilation, which is uh, Alex Garland's um, follow-up to Ex Machina, uh, his follow-up uh, directorial effort. It's based on a... Um, oh, nice. It's, <laughs> it's based on a novel. It's got Natalie Portman, Te uh, Tessa Thompson... Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, Oscar Isaac, a bunch of great people, and the trailer looks really good. And apparently, that's coming out February twenty third, so that's that's soon. I'm super excited about that. So anyway, uh, also involved in the cast for um, uh, Sunshine is Chris Evans, uh, Captain America, as Mace, uh, Troy Garrity as Harvey, and Mark Strong as well. Kind of rounding out the cast there. Uh, I apologize if I'm missing anyone. Am I missing anyone? Oh, uh, Kaneda. Uh, Hiroyuki Sanada 
as Kaneda, and then also Michelle Yao as uh, Corazon, and Cliff, Cur- Cliff Curtis as Searle. Like, this ensemble is so great, and that's one of the great things about the movie, is that it is an ensemble movie. It has this group of very talented actors that each each character is, like, as a credit to Alex Garland's writing, each character has their own specific thing. Each character has their own like crisis that they're the center of. And it doesn't feel like it feels so fluid and, and connected in a way that's, that's just really great. Um, and see, it just feels just seamless. And a good portion of that is Alex Garland's script. And then also, uh, Danny Boyle's direction. Like he put together a really great cast of, of actors that were, have just incredible interplay with each other. So, uh, I'm going to kind of just go through my notes here. So this movie opens with this really cool, um, reversed shot of the 20th century Fox logo and fanfare. So I thought this was a really clever way to bring us into the movie because it's, it's basically the 20th century Fox fanfare that everyone's familiar with played in reverse. And then the the movie opens with us zooming into the field behind the or like the 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 landscape behind the logo of 20th Century Fox until we see like what looks like the sun um but as we get closer to it we we realize that it's actually the reflection off the front of Icarus 2 and then we like as cap is doing his opening narration we're just slowly being brought into this and then the camera just spins around and shows the side of the ship and it's a very cool like um it's a very cool ship design because it's it's like just a it's like a long like uh hallway is the best way i can do it with like offshoots that are kind of uh circling around uh the the body of it and then um just this giant mass at the at the top of it or at the front of it that's the the bomb and the the shield and everything so it's a very cool very interestingly designed um ship and you know i've like opening narration and narration of any kind can be a crutch and i totally under uh, like i totally think that it could possibly be a crutch here in this movie but it's kind of fitting here. It's it brings us into the premise immediately, gives us all the information that we need. We don't have this this super expansive like high budget thing where it shows like oh the sun is dying out and the the entire world is just becoming uh colder and colder and and everything it's like it we don't have that because we don't need it and also the budget for this movie did not necessitate it i think that i want to say that this that the budget for this movie was 40 or 40 million um but i could be mistaken i don't i don't remember what it said on uh um box office mojo but it was a very very cheap movie that uh i think danny boyle really really exercised some great um uh, budgeting, like he brought in like some really good, um, visuals to this movie and kind of going back to that opening scene. I really like that the, that the way that the camera moves around, like it shows the title card of sunshine and it's kind of like, it's being burned away by the sun as we see the ship moving toward the sun. And what I love about this is that this gives us a very cool visual of the sun, kind of uh enveloping uh 
Icarus where you see like as the, as Icarus moves closer to it, you see that it's just, you just see a dot in the middle of it. So it gives the sun like an eyeball look that I thought was really cool. And man, just John Murphy's score is out of this world. It's, it's actually John Murphy and underworld, I think. Um, and the music in this movie is just astounding. Uh, not only is G- the kind of big, uh, musical like moment or the big, not musical moment, but the big score that is, that is, that went on to be in so many other movies and trailers even, um, but originated here like that, like that is a beautiful piece of music and absolutely haunting and, and incredible. But there are so many other tracks in the soundtrack. Like I would listen to the soundtrack from beginning to end at work, uh, for months after watching this movie for the first time. And there are so many tracks that are just so beautiful and just they, they show just how, uh, desolate the characters are and how isolated they are. Like it, it really plays into the themes of the mu- movie in a very spectacular and even moving way. I just, I really loved it. Um, so, and I'll, I'll stop here and just say that I am a huge, huge fan of this movie. I'm, I'm, and this review is going to be mostly me just fanboying out about sunshine, but that's not to say like, even though it is one of my favorite movies, that's not to say it is not, it's not a perfect movie or that's not to say it's a perfect movie by any means. It is, it does have some, some elements to it that can be construed as problematic, um, and can be kind of, uh, an issue. One of those, one of those issues really, and I'll get more into the, the bigger problems with the movie, um, and spoilers, but one of the big problems with the movie is that it is kind of dependent on a lot of tropes from the science fiction, uh, genre. So, like we have our introduction to the crew of Icarus two is this dinner scene where, which I think is a, it's a great way to introduce the characters. Like they have this interplay between them. Like we get the, we get the, um, introduction of Searle's obsession with, with the, uh, viewing room, uh, the observation room and, and kind of bathing in sunlight. Like that's a, and that's a very interesting, uh, uh, thing to bring up. And then you get just this immediate look at them bonding. Like you immediately get the sense that they've, they're a crew that have been, have been spending the last, uh, several, I think 16 months, um, every single second with each other. Like that you get the sense of this kind of camaraderie and they're kind of banding together to save the, save the planet. It's, it's all, all located in this uh, dinner scene at the beginning. The problem is that it borrows heavily from Alien, and it is such a such a trope at this point to have like a dinner scene where they where they're kind of uh, going back and forth. And it's it's not like that's an isolated thing. Like there's there's a lot to this movie that is borrowed from science fiction. Like they stumble across a mysterious beacon that they have to decide whether or not they want to go for. Um, so I mean, the movie does owe a ton to. Ridley Scott and Alien and, uh, and classic, more classic science fiction. So I'm not gonna get, I can't really give the movie, I can't, I can't properly, like, uh, gush upon this movie without, without, uh, uh, without noting that, yeah, it, 
it is a little there are there are moments about it that are pretty derivative of, of other science fiction. And, you know, it, it can be problematic, but I didn't mind. Of course, I watched this movie before ever seeing Alien. So um, I think I watched Alien for the first time, I think later that year in t- 2008. Um, but yeah, after, oh no, that was probably like 2009, 2010. But anyway, um, after seeing that, it kind of made me think like, wow, yeah, they they did borrow quite a bit for uh, for Sunshine. But Sunshine does stand apart on its own. It is, it's even though it is does have some uh, uh, derivative qualities, it is it still stands apart. And I'll I'll talk more about that as I go on. One of the things that really stands out about a about the movie is that it has such a commitment to authenticity and to this near future uh technology essentially so one of the things and and if you own this on dvd or blu-ray i highly recommend checking out danny boyle's commentary track because he he's a delight um he goes through um it's only him on the commentary and he goes through, he, he just seems like such a likable guy and he's very uh clear about like what he clear very clearly talks about what he what went into making this movie um but the movie's commitment to authenticity like he he in that commentary he talks about this uh i think it was the red bus principle uh principle or this idea that um like the idea is that okay this movie set 50 years in the future so like the kind of thing that people do in science fiction is like okay go balls to the wall as futuristically as futuristic as possible do all this crazy technology things but the idea is that okay well the movie's set 50 years in the future if you were to look back 50 years england had red buses 50 years ago and they still do today um i think it was red buses yeah i'm american so sure <laughs> they had red buses then they have red buses now so technology doesn't advance that quickly within 50 years so like in this movie a lot of the technology is very very contemporary but has some interesting kind of futuristic tendencies to it like the the earth room is just this it's not like it's not like the holodeck from uh from Star Trek or anything. It's just this room that the visual representation of earth, it it's enough to make you feel like, make it seem like, like Mace is, is being back on earth. But it's like, there's this, uh, there's this kind of tint to it, uh, that shows how, um, how, uh, how just not authentic it is and how, how it is just a, um, uh, a mirage or, or a simulation is the word I'm looking for. So, so then the movie progresses, they get, uh, they stumble across this mysterious beacon and then they have this great scene where they are discussing and debating the merits of the choice that they have to make. And I won't give away much, but they basically are, are faced with this, um, are faced with this choice and they debate very heavily about about the merits of of making this choice like in one way or the other and uh the character of Searle, he's the psych officer played by Cliff Curtis he says um cuz Mace the character of Mace played by Chris Evans says that obviously we're not 
we're not going to do like we're not going to make this choice we're not we're going to proceed as planned there's absolutely no no reason for us to divert the mission or anything uh and nothing can be more important than than what we're doing and he explains it very clear very very uh crystal clear and then he says like uh we'll take a vote um and then Searle says, we're not a democracy. We're a collection of highly trained astronauts and scientists, and we are going to make the most informed decision available to us. And I, I just love that because that is such a, such a great, um, such, such a great way to bring us into the plot without, without delving into this overdramatic thing because the the premise of the entire movie is pretty much like the most dramatic thing you can think of like the sun is dying and they're going to they're going to push a bomb into it to to bring it back to life essentially like it's it's you're already at peak drama you don't need like characters like uh, being nefarious or under underhanding doing underhanded things to to manipulate each other or anything it's just like yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to debate this and, and make a decision. Um, yeah, and there, there are a lot of things that I can talk about in non-spoilers here, uh, specifically. They do have a lot of little, uh, crises, uh, crises that occur throughout the movie. And each one is very different from the last. There are, there are certain things like they have to do a spacewalk. Uh, there's like the kind of obligatory EVA of, of a science fiction movie that has a really great, like that's, it's, it's incredible. I'll talk about that in spoilers. And then we get kind of a similar thing where they're, they need to problem solve a situation in which they need to get from one place to another. That is just so, so cool and, and interesting. Um, yeah. And then that third act, I'll, I'll speak vaguely about it and then I'll go into spoilers. That third act that, introduces something to the to the movie a lot of people are not fans of it and i for one love it because it it kind of transitions the movie into uh more of a horror movie that uh i appreciated because i'm a fan of that but i'm i can see why it would be problematic for people and why people are turned away by it. But I, I thought that it fit really well with the themes of the movie, which kind of the main thing that the thing that I love the most about the movie is that it is about, you know, scientists. Like it's about this feel, this feeling that, um, or this idea of, of science versus faith. And it's not like, it's not beating us over the head of, uh, over the head with it. It's just like, Hey, this character is, kind of a thoughtful person. This character is a more pragmatic person. They're clashing. And, um, it's just this idea of just, uh, faith versus science. Like, like, uh, it's, I'll talk more about that in spoilers. Uh, I'll talk more about that in spoilers, but, um, yeah, let me go ahead and jump into spoilers then in that case. So if you haven't seen sunshine yet and you want to see it, uh, and don't want to be spoiled, go and check it out. I don't think it's streaming anywhere, but, I mean, you can rent it on, uh, I'm sure Amazon Prime, iTunes, Google Play, wherever for a couple bucks. Um, or buy it, like me, because I'm a big fan of buying it, as I mentioned. So I've, I've bought several copies of it. So anyway, um, yeah, I'll play a little music here and then I will jump into spoilers.
All right, so I am going to go into spoilers for uh, uh, for Sunshine, and yeah, so consider yourself warned. So there is a lot to talk about and a lot to unpack about this movie. So the whole um, idea of people becoming fascinated uh, with bathing in sunlight on the observation deck or observation room of, of the Icarus is really fascinating to me because we get, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't see the pinbacker twist at the end, uh, problematic because it's, it's seated really well. Like we get to see later in the movie, we get to see him, uh, doing his, his, vlog <laughs> that he sends back to the moon base, just talking about how, um, he's, uh, he's fascinated by the way that the meteorites strike the ship. And, um, then in the, the kind of big moment where they, uh, find his video saying that, um, uh, on Icarus, say, like his final thing saying like the, our son is dying and who, who are we to, question God. And just like that idea is like, it's an extreme. It is a very big extreme for uh, a character to do. And that's a, like, that's an extreme villainous thing. But what I love about it is that that twist in that uh, perspective is seated in the movie by Searle and Kaneda's kind of fascination with, with watching the sun. And like, we get the scene where, you know, we see that Searle is, is kind of much more um, enticed by it. Like, like doing the, like changing the filter settings and everything. And then we get a scene where just a small scene where Kaneda is doing the same thing. And he's just, it's kind of like, he's, kind of testing the waters, I guess, or testing the light, I guess. Um, but it's, it's a good way to show that like, okay, well, what if the entire crew became fascinated with the sun in the way that Searle is starting to and Kaneda's hinting at? What would happen is what happened to the Icarus 1? Like, they uh, became became fascinated by it and became convinced that they weren't meant to save the planet because God wanted the planet to die. That's why he's killing the sun. Um, so yeah. So, and then that kind of brings me to Kaneda's death sequence, um, which the music again, there is just phenomenal. It's basically the, uh, the kind of main theme of the movie, the Adagio in, in D minor, but it has like, it's a, it's an altered version of it than what we hear at the end. But it's just, it's, it's fantastic. And, uh, I just, ah, oh, it's just such an incredible moment because it's the sun killing a person. <laughs> and, uh, I love the Canada. I love that Canada is just this very, um, he's just, he's a great, like, leader to the crew. Like, he is, he just, even when the, when the whole situation comes up, which I'll talk about in a, in a moment, but, um, when the whole situation comes up, he, um, he's just like, all right, well, I'll go, I'll go do the EVA. And then, uh, we get that great moment where Mace volunteers Capo, which is such a dick thing to do, <laughs> but, and also that is also somewhat problematic for the movie as well, because like, okay, the, the relationship between Mace and Kappa, which I'll talk about more here in a moment 
is really uh like it's it's really a great piece of characterization or a great conflict for the movie but the idea of not only a the idea of mace volunteering the ship's uh science scientist like like a uh, like physicist to do this incredibly dangerous and risky operation um and then uh and then him accepting it and no one saying anything about it is a little like a little bit problematic to me it's a little plot convenient because as it's stated later in the or later in the movie when he is required like when it's uh uh <laughs> when the when the plot lets it lets it say it uh he is the only one who can operate the the payload and he's like it's like if he were to die on that eva like made everyone would be screwed it doesn't make sense that he would be able to do that but the plot needed it he was the he's the main character of the movie i mean we needed it it's not it's not as problematic as as uh as uh you would think but there is a slight issue there and so uh, kind of on a similar topic, the reason that they that they had to go re- uh, fix the shields and everything is that Trey uh, miscalculated the uh, their alignment to the sun, and or they he miscalculated the manual uh, refiguring for their trajectory to the sun, which caused them to burn out um, and put them all at risk. And I love that moment. Like I love Benedict Wong's performance in that scene because he is, he's having his own little breakdown. Um, and it's just, it's played so beautifully. And he's just like, he's, he's saying like, I, I messed up. I like, he's, he's having like a mental breakdown. And it's just great because part of the, like the dialogue is that yes, he has so much on his mind and so much on his shoulders and that you put all of this onto someone and, they can mess up and it's, it's, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's just so great. That moment is so great. And then Danny Boyle pointed out in the commentary that, uh, uh, the character of Corey in one shot, like glares at Trey. And I love that. Like it adds so much detail to it because she, like, like Searle says earlier in the movie, they're a group of highly trained astronauts and scientists and everything working on, you know, this, they, they were selected for this mission. So when one of them messes up in a manner that it jeopardizes not only the mission and everyone's life and the life of humanity on earth, like you get this small like scene or the small shot where she's just glaring at him, like they're colleagues. And it's not like, like, even though they've spent so much time together, it's like, Hey, you know, you messed up. And I'm like, I've lost so much perf- uh, professional respect for you at this point. It's just in all of that is just in one shot. And I, I just love that detail. Um, yeah. And then kind of, uh, moving on from there, I kind of like the kind of under, understated way that the character of Harvey, like his sole purpose, his sole, um, uh, motivation throughout the movie is that he is he's the homesick member of the crew he's his main focus is going home so like when like when they're watching when they're uh looking at mercury um in the in that really great scene at the beginning like if you look he's that character is just looking down because he 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 couldn't care less about you know the planets and them like seeing 
something amazing or anything because he is just solely wanting to go home. Um, and like this comes into play with when like he's like he's the communications officer. So he points out that, yeah, well, you know, if we're going to do this, um, if we're going to move the ship around a little bit, uh, we're going to lose the comm towers. And everyone's like, yeah, who cares? That's <laughs> fine. All right. Well, whatever. We're in the dead zone now. So who cares? Um, and then kind of the culmination of that idea uh, or that uh, Harvey's Harvey's uh, Harvey's homesickness, I guess. Um is that after uh when they're discussing um what to do after it's happened after after they've had the big catastrophe and everything um Harvey kind of announces that they don't have the oxygen reserves to get to the uh uh or uh to for the return journey and it's great because in that moment like Mace says uh, he just says, so cancel the ticker tape, par- uh, ticker tape parade. And I love that because it's just such a, such a great moment where he's just like, he's saying what, you know, everyone's thinking, like everyone knows like, yeah, we're kind of going to die on this mission. Uh, it's regardless, like it's, it's unspoken, but everyone knows that they're, that they're going to die because they don't have the oxygen and everything, but they're going to live long enough to, you know, uh, jumpstart the sun. But Harvey's still the one that's, he's like, he's so, he's still holding out hope that they'll return home. And I just, I love that. Um, I, I just love that, that scene. Um, let's see. And then, um, so then after that whole thing, after they, they announce that they don't have the oxygen and everything, they have a test. There's a scene with a test, uh, with, with Kappa testing the, um, payload delivery. And they're in, they're like in the bomb and it's him and Cassie. And also like the relationship between Kappa and Cassie, it's, it's again, it's this kind of understated thing. It's kind of hinted that they, that they have like a romantic relationship, but it's understated because that, you know, the mission and and the story and everything take such precedence over that. Like I remember reading that Danny Boyle had said that, um, there was, when they were developing the movie, they were, <laughs> they wanted to be the first, I think the first movie to have, uh, uh, a sex scene in space. Cause I don't think any other movies did. Um, but they couldn't figure out a way to work it into the script. Um, uh, in a way that would be organic and the kind of, uh, the kind of, uh, what we got was Kappa and Cassie having that scene where they're, where they're talking um, after he's made the decision to divert the mission. And she's like, it's, it's kind of, that's, that's one scene that's kind of weird. Like Rose Burns delivery in that scene is kind of, there's something kind of off about their chemistry in that scene. Um, Cause that's where it's kind of like hinted at that, that yeah, they have a, a, a romantic relationship, but it's, it's just, it didn't really work for me, um, in that, in that, uh, case, but I, I do love the scene where they're test, where Cap is showing her the test for the bomb. And if you kind of see the movie as kind of a faith versus science allegory, I guess it's just interesting to see the way that Kappa and Cassie, uh, view their impending death. Um, it's not explicitly stated, but Kappa is kind of the, uh, more, most secular, character on the ship and then Cassie is 
it's again, it's not stated, but she wears a cross necklace. So she's, you can infer from that that she's a more religious person. And it's just an interesting read on, uh, or an interesting look at like their views on death. It's like Kappa's just very, um, not nonchalant about it, but he's like, well, this is, this is the height of human. Uh, this is the height of science that we're experiencing now. Like this is the height of human ingenuity and that like we are creating life out of a dying, dying star. Like we're creating a star out of a dying star. It's just, he's, he has kind of a romantic view of it. And then Cassie on the other hand is just like, she's scared and uh, she doesn't want to die. Not that any of them want to die, but she's just a more frightened person. Um, and it's just an interesting, interesting look at two conflicting ideologies in it. And then, uh, past that scene, we get the kind of expedition into Icarus one. Um, so this is, this is a great scene uh, or a great sequence. Like each, the movie can be divided into a few different segments, but this excursion into Icarus one is really interesting. It's, um, there's this effect that Boyle puts into it that anytime there are flashlights, kind of meet the lens of the camera uh, for a couple of frames. It just shows like a, a part of uh, one member of the crew of the Icarus one from the crew photograph that they have. Um, and it's kind of jarring it. Like it kind of made working third shift kind of creepy to me, <laughs> but it also was really confusing to me. <laughs> um, but I, I think that it was, it was, I mean, it was fine. It was, it kind of added, uh, a creep factor to it, um, to the proceedings and everything. And I like the idea of them finding the crew in the observation, observation room, having like killed themselves by, uh, being engulfed in, in light without the filter, which there can be an argument made there that did they really kill themselves or did Pinbacker murder them? to feed his own, um, you know, uh, his own, uh, goal for being the last human being in existence. Um, so that, that can kind of, it doesn't explicitly state it one way or the other, I don't think, but, um, that's one way to kind of read it, uh, or there are two different ways to read it. So after they are, uh, after the, the dock, the docking of the two ships is, is, uh, um, sabotaged, we have the whole crisis of them getting back in, back to Icarus too. And what I, what I kind of love about this is that the relationship between, or the dichotomy relationship, whatever you want to call it, between Kappa and Mace. So Kappa is this very thoughtful, um, um, very, uh, logic, logical kind of character and very compassionate character. Whereas Mace is like the opposite of them. He's this kind of crass, not necessarily crass, but he's this pragmatic, extreme, um, um, kind of hot headed character. And we get this conflict throughout the movie of Kappa and, and Mace kind of butting heads about different things. Like their introduction to the Mace character, I believe is him wrestling with, with Kappa because, uh, Kappa took too long in the, uh, uh, to, uh, sending off a message so he didn't have time to send his message. And so we get this conflict throughout it that it's such an interesting dynamic to have one character who is uh, kind of compassionate and, and, and ready for like who wants to make the right decision. 
Um, that's what I'm getting at. Kappa wants to make the right decision and, and the decision that benefits everyone. Whereas Mace is a character who sees the problem, analyzes it, and then immediately knows exactly what needs to be done, even if it is, is a, uh, has terrible consequences or, or consequences that, uh, are unavoidable, but harmful he's all, he's all focused on the mission essentially. So I love the idea of them getting back to Icarus too. It's just like, okay, well they have one suit. So obviously cap is getting it. Cause he's the science, he's the scientist. And I love that moment where Harvey's just like, Oh no, well I'm the, I'm the captain. And then I should, I should get the suit. And then he's like, you're a, and then they're like, you're a comms officer on a ship that has no means of communication. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I love that scene. But anyway, um, I love the kind of, the balls of the movie to do this. It's kind of a, it's kind of a more science based movie or it's, it's a more grounded in reality type of movie, but they have, they have characters like, uh, going into space without a space suit. Um, and I mean, it makes sense. It doesn't kill the movie for me or anything. And it, and science, it's science is out, I think. Um, but yeah, and that, I love that because, it just shows like uh, the kind of uh, peril, like, like the way that the characters respond to the string, the string of peril that they encounter is just really remarkable for this movie. And I, I that's one of the things that really attracts me to it. So um, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, um, kind of going into the third act, we get the reveal that the fifth crew member, um, cause the way that it's revealed is that Cap is doing his little calculations in the, in the bomb. And, uh, then they're just running down the thing. And then the AI and the ship just says like, Oh, there's five crew members. You don't have enough oxygen. Then they were the reveal that Pinbacker is the fifth crew member. And I like this. I like this reveal because, as I said, I, I do enjoy that element to the movie. And I think that that was a great way to bring in the third act and also bring, bring to light, no pun intended, the idea of, you know, the movie's main theme being, being science, the, the kind of struggle between science and, and faith and religion and how those two, how those two things kind of counterbalance each other and how they interact and in, in with each other. And obviously the, the villain of the movie is like a religious zealot. So it's, it's kind of one sided there on, on who's what's good and bad and everything, but it's an interesting dynamic to, to play around with. And there were uh, like, I remember when I saw the movie, a lot of people were complaining because they didn't like this ending where Pinbacker becomes a slasher movie with, uh, with just, uh, um, distorted, vi- distorted views of the, of the slasher of it. And it's like, it's played to some cool startling effect, but it also feels like they didn't have the budget to really do the makeup and everything for Pinbacker in a lot of scenes, which, I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to, uh, complain about that because I, it was effective on me, but I can see people having complaints about that. But one of the things that I remember, I vividly remember reading on like the IMDb message boards or something is that, um, a lot of, a a fair number of people were like, I kind of wish that the fifth crew member would have been like Icarus and that, that it was a sentient AI that was sabotaging the mission because, humans don't deserve to live or something like that. And I was just like, yeah, when you say it like that, it, it, it kind of tracks a little bit, but it also doesn't make an, 
any sense. Um, just because what, like there would be no reason why, um, except for just, it would be too, it would be way too much of a, um, tropish thing. Like it, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't attract well, um, throughout the movie. So I, I very much like the pinbacker element of it, especially where he's saying that, um, at the end of time, uh, there will be an angel and one man, the last man. And then uh, it's just, it's just such a fascinating thing. And Mark Strong is, is he, I mean, he's great. Um, just the way that he, the way that he goes into saying that he's, um, in kind of his final like battle with him and Kappa, he says something to the effect of, um, I, I talked, I spoke with God and, um, he told me to, that I was going to bring us all into heaven. Just like that. It's just such a chilling thing. Uh, it's, it's so great. So we get the kind of, we get the, uh, we get the kind of battle or, or the slasher movie thing. And I love that there's like going back to Kappa and Mace, like their kind of, uh, relationship or the dichotomy of them is that, uh, I love that like Mace's big thing is that he was, he had to get them, get the, get the ship's computer back in the coolant and everything. And, uh, while Kappa is trapped in the airlock. And so like Mace tells him like, well, you have to find a way. There's gotta be a way. And I just love that. Like, like Kappa does like what, like he, he kind of does something that like Mace would have done. Like he would, he does, um, he ends up, you know, uh, opening the, like, busting through the airlock and then, and then keeping the, uh, um, basically, basically releasing the air out of the ship, I guess. I I don't know. Uh, there's a word for it, but I, I, I can't think of it. My brain's fried, but anyway, um, so I just love that he does this extreme thing for the sake of the mission, which is something that Mace has been doing throughout the entire, uh, throughout the entire movie. It's a, it's a nice kind of nod to their, to their connection throughout the movie. And, the kind of big scene, oh, the big final fight with Pinbacker in, in Kappa, like when he chases him and like him and, um, him and Cassie are chasing him in the bomb. And like there's that scene where the, he peels the, where, um, I think it's Kappa. It might be, it might be Cassie, but they peel the, the, uh, skin, the burned skin from, uh, from Pinbacker's shoulder down to his hand. Like that just, that just, Oh, that got so under my skin. Um, yeah. So then, so then we're kind of getting to the end of it and this is a very long episode, but Hey, Patreon. Thank you, Robert. Anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we get the final moment where Kappa basically, we get the great moment where he's in the space suit and he's, he's walking to the, uh, to the, uh, to where the, Oh, this is before that actually. Uh, no, before the final scene with that, he's walking to the, to the bomb and it's such a great moment where we have that music playing and it's it's just it's it's so incredible and then we get the final final scene where um kappa gets into the bomb and sets it off humanity saved all that but i love the imagery of that because he's in the bomb he sets it off and then since he's you know close to the sun all that stuff uh it's it's distorting time and everything. So we get that, that last scene where it's just kind of the visual representation of the entire movie where Kappa is in the middle of the bomb 
on one side is all of the lights from the from the uh bomb being set off and then in front of him is like the surface of the sun and he's putting his hand up and touching it and it's just such a great marriage of of science and and theology i guess or science and and um god uh, essentially because the sun has literally given us all life and uh it's just it's such a great uh piece of imagery to close the movie on is just one man in between science and, and, uh, God is just, it's, it's spectacular. Um, and then of course we get the scene where, uh, back on earth shows that they, you know, won <laughs> and saved all of mankind. It's just, it's, uh, it's such a beautiful movie and I, I love it so much. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a great movie and I'm so glad that I got a chance to review it here. Overall, uh, one of my favorite movies, and uh, yeah, that's Sunshine from 2007 from Danny Poyle and uh, Alex Garland, and I hope that I did it justice. I hope that, uh, Robert, I hope you got your money's worth, <laughs> and uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed my review of Sunshine. So to kind of close out the episode, um, if you like what you've heard and you want to help support the show like Robert, uh, the easiest way to do that is by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. And you can also donate to the podcast through PayPal if you want to just do just a just a one-time donation, just straight to the point. Uh, uh, do that by PayPal. Go do that through PayPal by clicking the donate button that you can find on anthologypod.com. Or if you want to make recurring donations like Robert did um, with different reward tiers um, for the podcast, you can go ahead and do that over at Patreon.com/slash Obsessive Viewer. And then finally, finally. Um, Thank you so much to uh, Tony Troxel for providing the uh, the voiceover for the opening of the uh, of anthology. I keep forgetting to mention that. I'm so sorry. Uh, thank you so much, Tony. You can find Tony's work at geekingindiana.com and also on the Indiana Geeking podcast. He's a great dude, great podcast, great blog, great blog. My voice keeps cracking. Anyway, um, and then final thing is, of course, I'm still doing my. Um, uh, my promotion where, uh, you can win a free anthology t-shirt if you, uh, submit a screenshot of your review on iTunes or Stitcher and send it to me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com and you'll be entered into a drawing to win a free anthology t-shirt. And that deadline is December 31st at midnight. And then I'll, I'll select the winners from the entries on January 1st. All right, so that will do it for this week's episode of Anthology. Next week, I'm going to be reviewing episode 10 of the Twilight Zone's second season, A Most Unusual Camera. And then my bonus review for that episode will be the 1960 film Visit to a Small Planet, which uh, I haven't watched either of these yet, so um, I don't even remember why I picked Visit to a Small Planet. It has either an actor or director but in common with A Most Unusual Camera, but... Either way, Visit to a Small Planet is available on YouTube in its entirety, so watch it there, and then uh, join me next week as I review that, along with a most unusual camera. And, of course, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. 
For more of Anthology and a full archive of my episodes, go to anthologypod.com. And if you want to help support the show, the easiest way you can do that is by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also make donations to the show courtesy of the donate link in the show notes of each episode and on anthologypod.com. For recurring donations, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and just choose one of the anthology reward tiers. If you enjoy Anthology, feel free to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friend Tiny and occasional guest co-hosts over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also join The Obsessive Viewer Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. For book reviews and commentary on the world of reading, check out our sister site at ObsessiveBookNerd.com. And for philosophical discussions from a secular viewpoint, check out my friends Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Finally, if you'd like to contact me with your thoughts on the show, my reviews, my bonus reviews, or for any other reason, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send me an email at matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or send me a message on Facebook and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.